Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to another live edition of the Metrospective. I'm Ted Berg, joined on the line by one of the Athletics Mets beat writers, Tim Britton. And Tim, season is over, but they face now, uh, after that disappointment, uh, a potentially extremely disappointing offseason. Ted, first, I've got a I've got a question for you that again I don't know if you can answer, but I hope that someone listening can answer as quickly as we did when I asked that radio question several weeks back. Um, so I, I recently moved to the suburbs uh, six months, five months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to put this politely. What What's going on with Halloween decorations uh, in in the suburbs? It's oh, little, it's, that's it's, everything, though. It's that's everything. Yeah. That's, I, I, you know, I, I understood that, like, People decorated for Halloween more than they used to. Uh, there is a house in our neighborhood with an entire new graveyard in front of it, like a bunch of graves. And then the people that are out coming out of the graves, there's an otherwise well manicured house with dozens of skeletons clamoring up the front of it. Um, I'm just confused. Is um, I think that that is the same phenomenon. Like, I, I think that people just go all out in more circumstances now like the same thing i think is true of birthday parties like when i was a like i don't remember anyone ever having a balloon arch at a birthday party when i was a kid or even seeing that at birthday parties like in the park as of like 10 years ago and now every time you pass a birthday party it's like a more and more elaborate display of for like a two-year-old who would be thrilled with a single balloon um i feel like this is all driven by instagram would be my guess right like everybody just and so it becomes this like this game of one-upsmanship where you know by default you need to have an elaborate halloween display um and then you want to have like the one with the most eye-catching you know show of zombies or whatever uh, that's going to get you the most Instagram likes and comments. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that appeal, but I think that that's the appeal. Yeah, like we we went to a pumpkin patch over the weekend with our son, uh, and we were there for about uh, eight minutes because we took one picture of him and a bunch of pumpkins, and that was it. That's uh, what you need was, to do. Then put it down on Instagram. It lives forever. It was it was interesting um, to see like the number of people who were well dressed for the pumpkin patch. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and people like, you know, this is suburban New Jersey. These are people who like came from New York, uh, to do this. Uh, and we're like, oh, this was like on the way somewhere else that we were going and we decided to stop in. Um, it's strange. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ready for the modern world. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that we have to sort of just, uh, grow accustomed to the influencers among us. 
right? Because they are increasingly everywhere. I was at Disney World last year, so I uh, last week, so I saw a lot of it, and like just far, far, far more, uh, more uh, personalized shirts than you would have guessed. It feels like like if you're gonna go, and it's a big trip. Like we happened to go because my wife had a work conference there. It was it was less of a big trip for us, but I think uh, when you're doing something, it feels like everybody wants every occurrence to be so thoroughly documented that you need to go uh, as far out. And, and we see it in baseball too, right? Like it, increasingly no one is at the park, not wearing team paraphernalia. Well, I was going to say, we see it even in the clubhouse where seemingly every minor event of the season is uh, immediately immortalized in a t-shirt. Yeah. I, <laughs> that yeah. Plays I know. Where around, uh, you uh, know, the, the Mets had the, the combined no hitter, uh, t-shirt they had uh, I think they had a like a Mark Canna bat flip t-shirt there's the Mark Canna summer t-shirt like they're just uh, an incredible amount of uh, t-shirts that go into an average major league season these days like a couple of years ago when the Mets had the salt and pepper shaker thing was that 2019 2018 the start yeah, of the year every year it's a thing every year every team has something they do and that was like that was the only shirt they wore all season. Like you know, they they got all. I think that was the year they got off the eleven and one start, uh, and then you know they're under five hundred by the end of May, uh, and it was kind of a, a morose rest of the season. And you still saw guys wearing the salt and pepper shirt. It was like oh, it, it yeah. was like, immediately nostalgic. Um, I actually saw someone wearing that shirt and in the city field stands this year. Um, but now it's it's like if you're wearing the shirt from two weeks ago, it, it feels over overdone. Right, like rat raccoon. Come on. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, a former boss of mine is in the immediate T-shirt uh, sport business that like we turn around, you know, athletic T-shirts or whatever, uh, sports headline T-shirts quickly and sometimes hits me up for ideas. And I think the only one I've contributed that became a T-shirt was that when like Pete Alonso first came up, there was a T-shirt that was just that just said for Pete's sake. <laughs> and that was my idea. <laughs> Um, we had, we we can take questions on the actual Mets if you've got some. Please line up in the queue. Andrew L in the comments wants to know your best Halloween costume. Do you have a best Halloween costume? No, I just have a series of worst Halloween costumes. I was uh, like, I'm just not creative enough to care yeah. about Halloween. Like, uh, I'm not prepared w- enough. <laughs> there was one year I think I was in like fifth grade where I was just gonna go as a football player. Um, and like you know you went to school as your costume. Uh, and I realized that, like, that was too juvenile. Uh, and so uh, we we had, like, a class-wide party that night, or, or maybe the day before, day after Halloween. Uh, and I decided to go as a zombie football player. Uh, uh, so I just, I just added zombie makeup uh, to really, you know, make it a more, a more teenage costume. I had an extraordinarily elaborate costume, like, one time in, in, like, fourth or fifth grade. My dad made it where it was, like... I, it, you know, it was one of these costumes. It was, it was, be, now you see them pre-made. This was like a homemade deal where it looks like the monster is carrying me, you know? Um, but it was really uncomfortable. And then you had to, you know, they had to haul that around on Halloween when you're trying to like shaving cream your friends or whatever else. And, and so I think I wound up just becoming like, I changed and just was the monster. Um, otherwise, like then nowadays I sort of default to like, I like if I have a reason to dress up for Halloween, I just dress as Marty McFly because I usually have the clothes necessary to be Marty McFly. Yeah, that's like uh, I think the last costume, I, the last time I actually dressed up for Halloween was probably in college. And I just went as uh, Michael Sarah's ca- character from Superbad. 
because that was just essentially my word. <laughs> like, yeah, just like, oh, yeah. I'll, just, I'll just wear a hoodie. Like, that's, there we go. Yeah, uh, Evan was it? Was he Evan? Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, I just, I just, I just ran awkwardly when, when uh, the time yeah. came to run it all. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know. I, I mean, I, I hate being the I'm too cool to dress up for Halloween guy. It's not that. It's that I just don't have it together enough to like think about getting a costume more than a few days in advance. Yeah. It's it's too much work um, in life. You want to talk yeah, about the Yeah. And like. I'm 41 years old. Um, <laughs> we got some questions. Uh, Brian S. wants to know, who are the Mets most likely to sign? Trey Turner, Aaron Judge, Carlos Correa, or Carlos Rodon? Uh, I would probably put Rodon at the top of that list because if they do, uh, you know, if DeGrom does sign elsewhere, Rodon is the, the you know, the next big, op- he's the younger option on the free agent market. It's kind of DeGrom and Verlander are in their classes, probably shorter term, uh, huge AAV deals. Um, and then Rodon is the guy who might get, you know, five years uh, at twenty-eight, seven, $30 million. Um, he's still risky um, because, he's, he's, you know, his, his track record of health is not very long. Uh, but I, I put him probably first. Then I'll probably say Correa uh, if, if the Mets were able to convince him to play third base. Uh, if he wanted to uh, play third next to Francisco Lindor, he does not come. He can't get a qualifying offer, so it'd be a little bit easier to sign him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then probably well, uh, except it would mean it would mean more suitors as well, right? Right. Yeah. Like you know, I I'm, I'm interested in how his free agency plays out after the way it did last year. You know, all of those shortstops because you've got Correa, Turner, uh, Xander Bogarts is, is likely to opt out of his deal with Boston. Dansby Swanson. Uh, that, you know, you've got four really good shortstops. Are there four teams that are willing to spend the amount of money it takes to sign those guys? Uh, we saw last year, you know, Texas signed two of them. Uh, we saw Trevor Story take uh, a little bit less maybe than expected to play second base in Boston. You know, is there a, does there come a point in January, for instance, where like one of those guys is still out there? Uh, he's not going to play shortstop somewhere uh, and the Mets sign him to play second or third. It's um, that question sort of leads to something Billy Epler spoken, uh, spoke about a little bit and something he wrote about uh, really in depth, looking at you know, where the Mets are financially and, and where they could be and should be moving forward. Um, and when you look at the Mets roster and, and, and you did, um, what's concerning is that they could spend three hundred million dollars again and have a significantly worse team. Yeah. So, I mean, like they're. You know, to keep the band back together, they probably have to run the payroll closer to 360 or 370. Um, and that's just bringing back basically the same team, which it would be uh, a year older where you're hoping for some improvement from, you know, guys have better years, but also uh, some of your younger players, uh, Alvarez, Beatty, Vientos among them, uh, to step up. Uh, you know, to, if they, if Steve Cohen said on the New York Post, the show podcast with, with John Heyman and Joel Sherman, that, you know, you think you should be able to build a pretty good team for $300 million, which is true. They just did it. They built a pretty good team for $300 million. Uh, it's just they built a, I mean, they, to be fair, they built a very good team for, for yeah. $300 million. Right? 101 wins is a very good team, no matter how it ends. But their their payroll obligations going forward, it's it's just about $225 million, uh, And that's without any of those 13 to 15 free agents they have. Uh, that's with uh, Stephen Nagosik as your eighth inning setup man in front of Drew Smith in the bullpen. Um, that's with, you know, Carlos Carrasco as your number two starter. Joey Lucchese is your number five. Uh, so right. they've, they've got a lot of a lot of space that they've got to fill in. And, you know, Epler said on Friday kind of, you know, you don't build sustainability via free agency. 
uh, which I think is, is true to true for the most part. Uh, you kind of use the, the free agency to supplement your roster. Mm -hmm. You acknowledge that, you know, they got to do a lot of supplementing, especially in their pitching staff, especially in that bullpen where, you know, they, they haven't developed bullpen arms. That's an, an area where we've seen a lot of teams succeed uh, in with lower cost. Uh, options, you know. Some of I the... mean, to be fair, they they developed Paul Seawald and Rafael Montero. <laughs> well, yeah, you you see those guys succeeding <laughs> elsewhere. You know, it's kind of the all of those trades they made in 2017 for relief arms and and Smith uh, and Nagosik are the only two that that have kind of made it. And made it is in quotes because you know Nagosik is just an up and down guy. Smith is kind of you know good to be the third or fourth best guy in your bullpen. Probably not a guy you want to give the eighth inning every day. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, you know they've got a lot of significant choices and so it's you know when they say like we had a we have a 101 win team uh you know we, we feel good about where we are that's not really where you are you don't have a 101 win team anymore uh you have uh, a team that won 101 games and is missing half its roster now and so you know they have to decide on Jacob Pagram on Edwin Diaz on Brandon Nimmo on uh how they feel about Alvarez and Beatty as potential everyday contributors versus part-time contributors versus minor league guys at the start of the season. Uh, how how much do you count on David Peterson and or McGill and Lucchese in your rotation? You know, there's there's just a lot of different avenues that they can go in uh, this offseason uh, to define, you know, what the 2023 version of the Mets is going to be and then down the line beyond that. Let's go to the queue. Ben H has been waiting. Ben, what's on your mind? Um, so it, basically all week, Tim, I've had your peep stuck in my head just describing the locker room after the season ended. And I, I don't know, like I can't kind of get the scene you describe of them not kind of being outright dejected and sad. And I, and I guess my question for you is, because like you read baseball writers all the time and when a season ends, they always talk about the guys being really sad and like other than Seth, like the guys that just stay in uniform for a very long time and other than like Seth Lugo that wasn't really the scene you described I don't know I don't know I guess just my question is if you could go just talk a little like is that is what you saw with the Mets like is that very abnormal that they had kind of come to terms with it is that more of what the world is and baseball writers try to make it seem a little bit more romantic um, so I guess that's really my question. Like, do you have just any thoughts on why, just why the scene was how it was? Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a good question because it was uh, a, a weird scene. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have a huge surplus of experience in a clubhouse when a season ends in the playoff, but it, I don't have none. You know, I was there. Uh, let me let me go through this. The the 09 Angels ALCS. I was in their clubhouse after the 09 Phillies when they lost the World Series. I was there after the 10 Phillies when they lost the NLCS. I was there after uh, in uh, the the Red Sox in 16 and 17 when they lost the division series. I was there after I was, you know I was there when they lost the final game in the 2011 season to complete their September collapse. All of those times the clubhouse was uh, more dejected than the Mets one team. Um, you know like you you talk about kind of the the one player stuck in uniform, his head down. Like that was the Phillies in 2010. I remember, you know, I was like the sixth sidebar guy for MLB.com. And I was writing about Ryan Howard who had made the last out in the ninth inning. And my opening scene was Howard sitting there, head down. Uh, I think I compared him to uh, a painting. 
Uh, and then, you know, our, our, our main Phillies writer, Todd Zalecki at MLB.com, uh, had done the, had had the, like, the exact same week um, because it was such a stark image. Um, and the Mets, you know, Lugo was clearly sad, like Brandon Nimmo kept his uniform on for a long time. Uh, but there just seemed to be like, um, you know, I don't know if it's, it's necessarily coming to terms of, that, that they were not going to win the World Series or it was just like, hey, this is the playoff format. Uh, it's difficult to, to win. And, and we didn't. So, you know, that happens. Uh, it just, you know, like I said last time, Andy McCullough compared it to like the end of a pretty good party. Um, you know, it seemed like, you know, the end of like a graduation party you have senior year of high school where, you know, you're not going to see these guys together in a while, but you're pretty, pretty happy that you were together for as long as you were. But that was just kind of the vibe I got. Uh, it was an, an interesting vibe. Uh, Andy's been in a lot more uh, postseason clubhouses than I have because uh, he's covered the Royals, Dodgers, Yankees. Like he's covered the postseason every year, uh, and he thought it was kind of a weird vibe. So it's just, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I don't want to read too much into it. It was just not what I expected. Uh, I mean, I, I have as as a longtime low man on the totem pole at USA Today covering the postseason. I've I've been in a bunch of those clubhouses. They're usually pretty sad. I would say, though, like we praised the Mets all year long for professionalism, right? Like this is these are professionals. These are veterans. These are guys who have been there before. And so, like, it, I, I don't know, like you I would be I would also be wary of like performative sadness in that spot, too. Right. Like Max Scherzer knows the story with a postseason series. It's three games. Sometimes you win them. Sometimes you don't. Right. Like, I, I don't know. I. I can't I can't say I'm not going to sit here and, and and listen to anyone say like, oh, the Mets lost because they didn't care enough. No, I, and I, I don't think that's it. And, you know, they've also got a lot of veterans on this team, guys who have experienced postseason heartbreak, not not just Scherzer, but guys like Bastet and Canna uh, who have seen their season. They're, you know, really good regular seasons end in a one game wild card playoff uh, in Oakland. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's that they didn't care. I, I think I, I do think uh, that 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 series in Atlanta. I don't know if it uh, like dented their self-belief or anything like that, but it did seem to take a little bit out it of it. It dented mine. It dented yeah, mine. And clearly, like, it dented the fan base's belief. Like, the game was not stalled out on Sunday night. Um, you know, it, it, made, it made losing that early seem a lot more possible than it would have otherwise. You know, even if the Mets had lost the division somehow but had won a game in Atlanta, it would have felt, I think, a little bit differently than how having gone into that series, you know, with your three guys lined up, like, you know, it was, it was Nimmo after that Saturday game when they lost, they'd lost with DeGrom, they'd lost with Scherzer, who said, you know, we, we threw our best, they kind of stuffed it in our faces. Uh, and, you know, when that happens to you, it, it has to, I think it necessarily uh, dents your confidence a little bit. Let's hear from Jeff H., who has been waiting on the line. Jeff, what's going on? Jeff, what's going on? Hi, guys. Uh, Jeff, Silver Spring, Maryland, and the National League Town Podcast. Uh, pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Tim, thank you. Uh, Tim, uh, you talked about the Mets' need for power, and I agree with you 100%. Pete needs somebody hitting behind him, but the problem is that there's all of the names you mentioned are wishes. Alvarez, Vientos, Beatty. The Mets need a Kyle Schwarber. I don't think they're going to trade for Wilson. Excuse me. I don't think they're going to sign Wilson Contreras. That's 20 home runs. So other than the aspirational young players, where do you see the Mets getting somebody to hit behind Pete? It's a good question because uh, 
the, the, the first option, of course, is Aaron Judd. Um, and that is, you know, like, I think there there is kind of the thought, uh, the consensus in the sport that uh, Judge probably goes back to the Yankees, right? Uh, that, of course, was what everyone thought about Freddie Freeman and Atlanta this time last year. Uh, so you never know with a, a big free agent like that. And I do think the Mets, you know, I, I assume they are seriously contemplating a run at Aaron Judge. Uh, and I think they should, uh, if they're not. Um, beyond him, there are some, you know, some different alternatives. You know, like a guy like. You know, a, a guy like Correa could make some sense. Uh, you know, Turner hits for power, but it, it's 20 home runs and it's more extra base power. Um, you know, some guys that, that might make sense in the trade market, like Hunter Renfro is a guy who's hit, who, you know, is a 30 home run hitter for Milwaukee uh, in Boston the last couple of years. He might be available in a trade uh, because it's the Brewers and he's going to make 11 or $12 million next year. Anthony Santander with the Orioles is a guy who is consistently brought up in trade conversations, a switch hitter. Uh, who it's for power, but generally has a low on base percentage. You know, you, you worry about trying to add a single statistic too much at the expense of good players overall. Like you, you don't say like, well, we won't sign Correa because we want to get more power. We'll trade for Santander. Um, you don't do that. But uh, I do think it is important that they have kind of a, a fifth place hitter in that lineup. You know, especially if McNeil, you know, if you let Nimmo go and McNeil hops up to the top three, uh, then you want to have someone some bulk behind Alonzo uh, in a way they didn't really have for most of the year. Uh, we had a good question in the chat from Bill B. Uh, he's, who says, going into the offseason or the 2023 season, what do you see as the organization's strength? For the longest time, it seemed like everyone pointed to the Mets starting pitching. Uh, not, no matter what the offense does, uh, at least they have starting pitching. Now their starting depth seems extremely thin. Seemed like the Mets were set up to have so many DH options before it became universal. This season disproved that. What is the one thing that you can point to going into the offseason and say, say at least they have? Tim, I, I have an answer, but you can. I want to hear yours. Well, I, w- I would say right now it's probably uh, their core four hitters that are returning, which is Alonzo, who hit 40-plus home runs and drove in 131 runs. It's Lindor, who drove in more than 100 runs and, and you know, was worth, what, six or seven wins above replacement. We'll, we'll finish probably in the top 10 in MVP voting. Uh, it's Starling Marte, who had a, an excellent all-around season and, and was kind of the glue, as, as we saw in September, of the top part of that, that lineup. And then it's McNeil, the returning National League batting champion. Like, you have those four hitters. That's a really good start to building out your lineup. Uh, you've got some veterans, in addition to that, obviously, in Escobar and Canna and Vogelback coming back. Uh, but but that's probably the strength. But I, I don't think, I can't say, like, organizationally, you know, you look at Cleveland, for instance, you say Cleveland develops starting pitcher. That's what it. That's what it does so well. That's why the Guardians are where they are. Uh, I don't think there's a part uh, organizationally with the Mets where you say that's what they do better than anyone else uh, right now. Uh, outside of they've got a lot of financial resources that they can devote to those kinds of things. I would say I, I mean it's sort of the same same idea. Like I would to me it's just like and and I did, don't disagree with the idea that they could use another like big power bat, but their offensive depth like they already have a um an acceptable starting nine that they could run out there right now right and that's that's even with Nimmo leaving um so so to me it's it's that you know and that's without counting too much on on Alvarez or Beatty or guys like that uh, again like you need you want more of that depth but going into the offseason where they are offensively I think is a strength um I think that the the point is right that starting pitching just isn't 
what it was coming into this season. Uh, it's, it's Scherzer and Carrasco and a bunch of question marks. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Um, we've got Rob S. in the queue. Rob, what's going on? Oh, sorry. Oh, so just a quick question. Um, so I, I just wanted your opinion. Like, like, I always thought that this season, even like just for how well they did, was more of a sort of like a transition season um you know like the the shares are like i don't i don't know if they were meant to do so well now like i just like my my sense was like the will ponds like there was just a lot to unpack with the will ponds in terms of the organization in terms of like minor leagues and international scouting so i mean is that accurate or were they were they surprised at how well they did um like i i don't just just want to get your sense of like was or was this the year they they really thought that they could win yeah, I, I, I think they, they were, were taken aback by winning 101 games. I don't think they, if you if you said going into the season, well, you can win 101, they would have jumped at that. I think they would have jumped at 92. Um, I think losing in the wild card series, that's probably, uh, you know, that's what I picked them to do going into the season. Uh, and I think that's probably what a reasonable expectation of this roster would have been going into the season, especially, uh, you know, you would, you would have said like they'd be a toss up in a wild card series is kind of my thought going into the year. Um, you know, the way they looked at the team at the trade deadline certainly suggested that they thought that, you know, this is this is kind of the, the first year of, of hopefully a run of contention. But the, the fly in the ointment of that is you've got 13 to 15 free agents, a lot of them really good players. You know, it's it's not like this is uh, 20, the 2015 Cubs 
where it's like, oh man, they got all the way to the NLCS. They got the, you know, they won 97 games and everyone's coming back next year because they're all pre-arbitration players. Uh, this is a veteran roster and the time frame for this specific roster's success is relatively brief. You know, I've compared them to the 2013 Red Sox team that won the World Series that had kind of a similar shape to the roster. And that team finished in last place in 2014 with a lot of the same guys back. Uh, so, you know, I, I think if if they're looking at it as the first year of a of a prolonged period of contention, they've got a lot of work to do to extend that window uh, because uh, the, the team right now is, is kind of only half built. Can I ask you a question that based on something I, that that you wrote? Um, sure. So so your guess was around 44 million a year for Jacob deGrom, right? I said kind of 40-ish. Um, yeah. I, I don't know that he'll top Gerzer, but I think it's right in that ballpark. So, uh, and this is a sacrilegious question, and I realize that. Is there a case to be made? I want I want the Mets to bring back Jake DeGrom. I want the Mets to get DeGrom and Judge and Shohei Otani, right? Like, sign everybody, because it's not my money. But if there is a, a finite cap somewhere to the Mets payroll, is there a case to be made that they're better off spreading that money around the starting rotation than spending 40 million or 40 plus on DeGrom since there are a handful of like the 10 to 15 million your Chris Bassett's and your Taiwan Walkers and your Jameson Tyones and and even up to Rodone um like would you rather have two to three other free agent starters than put all of your eggs in Jacob DeGrom's basket well yeah I mean like absolutely there's that case to be made um I don't I don't think anyone disputes that. I think if if you're going to make the case the other way, uh, the case kind of in favor of the Grom, it's that like, you know, let, let's say the Mets spread the, those that that money around. Let's say they take that forty two million dollars and they sign three starting pitchers. They sign Walker. They sign Bassett. They sign Payone. Uh, probably can't get all three of those for forty two. But, you know, no. we'll, we'll say that that for, um, you know, for the sake of the argument, you get into the postseason series. How good do you feel about your rotation matching up right. with someone else? It's Scherzer. You don't know, you know, the, the arguments we had the last month about Carrasco versus Walker for your game five starter. That's your argument for your game two starter. I guess it's Bassett in this, this instance. Uh, and then it's Scherzer, it's Bassett. Then it's, you know, Walker, Carrasco, Tyone. Like those are your three, four, five. You know, I think you get into the postseason and you want, you know, we talk about depth and how important it is all season long. It is really why. Uh, the team, a team like the Dodgers is so good over 162. Uh, they've got they're better the top part of the roster through the 35th, 40th, 45th guy than anyone else. But you end the postseason, those the 35th guy doesn't matter, 30th guy doesn't matter, 25th guy doesn't matter, 20th guy doesn't really matter. Uh, it's really the top part of your roster. Uh, that's why I think LA hasn't done as well in the postseason, and, and why the one year they won was the year there were no off days in the postseason because that depth mattered more that year. Um, you know, you want Scherzer and Degrom at the top of your rotation. Uh, you want that star level kind of performance at the expense maybe of who your fourth and fifth starters are. Maybe you say, okay, we can roll with McGill and Peterson as our four and five if it means we have Scherzer and DeGrom at the top. Uh, you know, we've got Lucchese as our depth. I mean, maybe you sign one more depth guy and, and you you get through the regular season so that in the postseason you've got your the best one, two possible that you can have. That's the argument in favor of it. You know, I'm I'm sympathetic to both. Like, you know, if, if it's if it's possible to get Rodone and uh, Taiwan Walker or something like that. That's probably about forty-two million dollars. Uh, maybe that, maybe that's the best way to go. Kind of compromise where you've got a guy you feel really good in game two, and uh, and you move from there. But uh, you know, it, it's just a matter of where that that 
but you know, and there's a line on the payroll. We know it's it's not infinite, um, but we don't know where that line is and and how close the Mets are to, to getting there. I mean, because I you might say like we we talk about getting too cute, right? Like if you're building with your postseason series in mind, I mean, it feels first of all sort of ambitious, right? You got to get there first, but then also, I mean, they were built this year like that, right? Like they had Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom and Chris Bassett for a three-game series. What could be better? And they still lost it, right? So so I'm just playing devil's advocate because I don't want people to get tweet at me about how I hate Jacob deGrom and want him off the team, anything like that. But just like, shouldn't the main goal just be make the best team you possibly can and then roll the dice with the postseason? Because like, again, like no one would have guessed that the San Diego Padres starting rotation would have outpitched the Mets in that series. And they absolutely did. Right. And no one would have guessed that Joe Musgrove would be unhittable for the final month of the season. Um, like the, those things happen. I, I don't know. It just it feels like those things just sort of happen for one thing. And then also, like, you just want to have the best team possible to hope that those things are happening to you at the right time. And you're already set up to make the postseason. Yeah, I think the, the one thing that I would uh, I would be, be leery of is having a kind of nihilism toward the postseason where your, your idea is just like, ah, you know, like. There, there's no there, nothing works in the postseason. Just, you know, every team's got a one out of 12 shot. Just get there. You know, just build. The that is team. absolutely I will say just either you are not going to convince me otherwise. But go on. Right. Like, like, just I, I don't want, a team, you know, and, and I think we'll see this in the sport teams to say, like, let's just build the best 86 win team we can get there and see what happens. Because no, think, no. I, right. Because I think, like, you look at San Diego and Philadelphia and you say, Man, those are teams you didn't expect to be in the NLCS. Neither of them won 90 games. They're also top five payroll teams. Uh, San Diego has largely underachieved this year. Philadelphia underachieved for a large portion of the season. Like, they're good teams. They're well-built. Well, <laughs> they've got a lot of good players on the team. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's not a surprise necessarily that San Diego could outplay the Dodgers uh, in a four in a five-game series. Like, they've got enough talent to do that. Uh, they've got you know, Darvish, Snell, and Musgrove. That, that, Clevenger is their fourth starter. That's a really good rotation. Uh, that's better than, for instance, the a rotation where the Mets are just signing, uh, you know, Walker, Bassett, and Tyone. Uh, so I, I think there there are things that work in the playoffs. They don't work all the time. They don't work 100% of the time. Uh, hitting home runs is good in the playoffs. Having uh, outstanding starting pitching is good in the playoffs. Having uh, a lot of, having a few standout relievers is good in the playoffs. Uh, like there are things that work in the playoffs more often than other things. I don't think it's necessarily one out of 12. Uh, otherwise, Oakland would have advanced one of those years. Right. Um, I, I don't I don't think so. Like, I really I really think if it's if it because if it's only one out of 12, then it's one out like, I don't know, you, you're still you can you can land on tail six times in a row. Right. Like these things happen. I don't know. I just feel like if there were an obvious formula to winning in the postseason, you'd see more teams following it. And for all that we hear, like, again, like uh, great starting pitching and lots of home runs and a great bullpen, those things are good for baseball teams for any game of the season, right? And um, you're correct that it's not surprising that the Padres could beat the Dodgers in a five-game series. But, like, would it be terribly surprising? Like, it would be a little bit surprising, but would it be, like, overwhelmingly surprising if the Rockies beat the Dodgers in a five-game series? No, I mean, that, that, that's baseball, right? That, that anything right. can happen in, in those short stints. You need, what, like a best of 71 series or something for it to, to actually... Uh, um, so so if, if, the, if one team... If you're saying that 
one team is better enough. This is sort of abstract, but so if you're saying that the Dodgers could have beaten the Padres two out of every three times, um, like so that they and that's 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 a big ask, right? Like if you think about baseball teams, like the worst baseball teams still win 50 games and the best baseball teams only win, well, the Dodgers won 111, but typically the best baseball teams win 100 to 105, right? It's not like the NBA or NFL where you get an 80% winning percentage ever. Um, And so if the Dodgers were good enough to beat the Padres 66% of the time or 67% of the time, two out of every three, um, to give them a 95% chance of winning a postseason series, it would need to be a best of 23 series. Um, and if the Dodgers were only good enough to beat the Padres 55% of the time, to um, give them a like what a uh, to prove with statistical significance that they were the better team, meaning over 95% uh, chance of winning, you'd need a 269 game series. Mm-hmm. This uh, this reminds me of when I was a kid. My my brother and I played a 21 game uh, basketball series one on one. It was on a little like six foot hoop with a small basketball. Uh, and it went to game 21. Uh, we were playing to 100, and the final score was 199. Um, and it was the most evenly matched series ever played in any sport ever. Um, that just, that, but, does, that does sound that way. So <laughs> so so are you convinced that he's better than you? No no I won. I, I, oh. I, I have to make that abundantly clear. So there's a fluke. Um, and it, it, it uh, cemented that I was better than him, not just at basketball on a six-foot hoop, but at most things. Um, that, that, that's the deciding factor between us. Um, so I, I just, I, I think there are, you know, yeah, you build the best team you can build. Um, but I think there are a couple of things you keep in the back of your mind that they work a little, they're a little bit more important in the playoffs. You know, okay. more a higher percentage of runs are scored on home runs in the playoffs than elsewhere. You know, being good right. against good pitching is more important when you face good pitching in the playoffs than elsewhere. Uh, those kinds of things. I'm not, I'm not saying like, you know, I, I don't want teams to to just try to build the best 86 win team they can. Uh, I don't want the uh, the Mets to say like, we don't need a fifth starter. You don't need that in the playoffs. We'll just roll with four and then just throw a fifth guy out there whenever we need it. Right. Um, you know, I, I think there are limits to that. That I mindset but i i don't want the team to just like we'll, we'll do whatever we can but the playoffs really are not an indicator of any kind of of talent uh no i i think that's fair and like and i would say like certainly it does feel like having a lockdown bullpen is a great recipe for postseason success i would just say like if i'm going into the season if i'm going into spring training i want the mets to build the best team they can and worry about the postseason particulars when you get to the trade deadline like oh we could really use for example uh, a a strong right-handed bat and a good left-handed reliever. Well, like well, one thing about that is if you're in the position, the like you know, I remember covering the Red Sox, and that was generally how they viewed. They're like, you know, let's see what we've got for four months, and then uh, you know, we we could sign this guy to, to fill this possible hole in the, the offseason, but let's see where we are. We can always trade for someone like him in July. Um, if you're going to take that approach, you've got to be willing to trade pieces in July. Um, right. So, like, you know, if, if the Mets approach last year was like, we'll fill the lefty reliever thing if it's really an issue on a, by August 2nd, uh, but we don't want to trade any of our top 20 prospects, that's, you can't have both of those. So if, if you're not planning, you know, if you want to hold on to your prospects as much as they've indicated they want to hold on to them, then I think you've got to be a little bit more aggressive in free agency to fill potential weaknesses and not just obvious ones. What's Andrew Chafin up to this offseason? <laughs> Probably opting out of his of his deal. Uh, I think he's got one year and six and a half million left on it with Detroit. 
He is, uh, I believe, Cody Stavenhagen, our Tigers writer, wrote a little bit about Chafin uh, in his season wrap-up um, that he is, you know, I did not know he was native to the Midwest and so maybe wants to stick around in Detroit, uh, but probably opting out and seeing if he can get more money uh, uh, this offseason than he did last offseason. He has a very Detroit mustache, right? Like Tom Selleck. And that is another Halloween. That's a, to go back to our earlier question, another go-to Halloween costume for me is uh, Magnum P.I., you know, just a Detroit Tigers hat and a and a fake mustache. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe Andrew Chafin sort of always wanted to be like Tom Selleck growing up. Uh, Paul S. in the chat has a question. Uh, for 40 to 45 million, I guess, per year, DeGrom or Judge? Discuss. I mean, I, I think, well, first of all, Judge should not take quite as much as DeGrom takes per year, but it's going to be a longer term commitment. Right. Um, it's a different type of commitment. Yeah. Uh, I would probably, you know, I think you you lean on the position player in those kinds of arguments uh, just because they, they, they impact the game every day and they, they generally stay healthier. Uh, you know, it's, it's a question of do you trust Aaron Judd at 38 or Jacob DeGrom at 36, uh, 37? You know, it, it's probably, there's probably a wide enough age difference that the contract length is kind of evened out. Uh, so in that instance, I'd probably go with Judge. Uh, so do you have a choice? Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say I'd say judge in that in that yeah. particular one-on-one. I I think so too. I mean, I think that the and and again, like sacrilege, but uh, there's the the certainty of the position player. Um, there's so much less risk of injury, you know. And and when you're talking about investing that much, especially when you've already got uh, quite a bit invested in in a, a late 30s starter and Max Scherzer, like spread it out. Um, judge is not going to stop being a great hitter anytime soon. And there's some chance that that DeGrom, like, and no one wants to sort of consider this possibility, but there's always a chance that DeGrom has, you know, two more, three more seasons of of 10 to 15 starts. Um, And and then, you know, you could have had Aaron Judge for for 155. Um, Let's see what else we've got in the chat because no one's in the queue right now. Um, Do you think Madison Bumgarner could be had in a trade, maybe in a salary swap with James McCann? Uh, I would imagine Arizona would be interested in unloading Bumgarner's uh, yeah. salary. Uh, I believe he has at least a limited no-trade clause. It is uh, likely, in, in that instance, uh, that he would have New York on it because um, I don't think he wants to pitch here. Um, and and you know, He's got, I'd have to look it up, I think it's two years and, and 30-something million dollars left. McCann has two years and 24 uh, with McCann, you know, we've got another question in the chat along these lines since they've got, you know, three potential major league catchers in, in Nito, McCann, and Alvarez. Uh, you know, do you try to trade Nito maybe because you get more value for him? Um, yeah, I, I think the likeliest option here with those three guys is they carry all of them uh, because Alvarez, you're not quite sure, is ready to be a major league catcher. And, you know, if you, you want to use him as a DH, uh, you kind of want to have a third catcher on your roster uh, just for, you know, bench reasons um, and flexibility reasons. So uh, that would be my my guess is what they do. But if you wanted to trade McCann, it would probably be eating, I would think, 14 to 16 of the $24 million left on on, on his deal uh, and trading him, you know, looking around at, at what kind of teams need a catcher. Like the Pirates made a deal or, or signed Roberto Perez before last offseason because they wanted a, a veteran catcher to deal with a young pitching staff. Maybe you pitch them on McCann uh, doing that same kind of filling that same kind of role for about the same amount of money they paid Perez, uh, who got hurt early in the year. Uh, you know, th- that's the kind of deal that, you know, and you get a, a, a lottery ticket of a, of a high A relief arm back. That's kind of what, what I'm thinking. 
Right. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, there's no way you're going to, it seems to me like the upside on Bumgarner, even after some lousy seasons is still worth more than what you can expect paying $12 million for James McCann. Like that doesn't, that doesn't seem like a straight up swap to me. It's, you know, do you run Like, I think it's easier to hide, uh, a, like if McCann is your third catcher on your roster, uh, you know, you're not exposing him as much as like it's harder to hide Bumgarner. Has he just become a a long man if he if he struggles again if his ERA is up over five? Right. Uh, it's been the last couple of years. Does, I mean, they still need a lefty reliever. You know. Does he become Does he become your left-handed specialist? Uh, you know, how how unhappy is a player that you know? McCann, I am sure, is not happy with a reduced role, but uh, he can probably ex- come around to accepting it a little bit more than than Madison Bumgarner might if he's traded somewhere he doesn't really want to go. Do you know I've played cornhole with Madison Bumgarner? Was it Madison Bumgarner or uh, what was it? Mason, Mason. Ma- uh, it was, uh, it's his, um, I forget. Cause I was, it's, it's his, it's his wife's maiden name is whatever the, the last name he uses, which is also like, uh, so his, his father-in-law sort of, I think runs his ranch in the off season. All of these people were, were around when I was there playing cornhole. Mason Saunders. Mason Saunders. Mason Saunders. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, he's a, he's also an exceptionally good cornhole player. Like really, really, really good. I mean, like the, I would expect that, right? Like he's he's able to throw something much harder. Well, he's he's, 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 a, he's, a, he's huge, you know. So like his his <laughs> arm, if he once he gets his arm extended, he's like halfway to the to the other board. <laughs> Um, far better. Uh, also, also there it was, I was on, uh, at his ranch in North Carolina where they were filming a commercial and the guy filming the commercial and I, I hadn't watched game of Thrones yet. Um, so I, he was not as big a deal to me other than the way he looked physically, which was incredible was, uh, Jason Momoa, the guy who, you know, the huge guy from, from game of Thrones, he was directing the commercial. Uh, he was not quite as good at Cornhole. Right, yeah. It's it's funny because you said Jason Momoa. I was like, he wasn't on Game of Thrones, but then I I remembered that that is actually where he got his start. Right, right. Now he is now he is like notable as this incredible looking guy, um, <laughs> and Aquaman, Aquaman. That's uh, right. Um, let's see one more from the chat. Um, do you know? I mean, I guess this sort of points to something that that we we spoke of earlier um richard a wants to know what is the team's farm system system looking like on the pitching front uh he mentions vassal hamill and allen and matt allen um you tell me there's there are not a lot of uh well-regarded pitching prospects in the met system as far as i know yeah i I would not expect uh any help from within the system in 2023 from the pitching side of things uh, you know, I think the your your depth is going to be uh, that McGill, Peterson, Lucchese, maybe Jose Buto group. Uh, Buto might might end up being a reliever himself. Um, you know, Vassal actually Keith Law at the Athletic has uh, some scouting notes on Vassal, uh, along with uh, outfielder Brandon McIlwain on his uh, his latest story about the Arizona Fall League. You know, he said Vassal potentially intriguing, but but probably projects more to be a reliever. You know, Allen has thrown, I think, 10 and a third professional innings since being drafted in, in 2019 uh, mm-hmm. because of the pandemic and then his Tommy John surgery. So he's got a ways to go. Uh, you know, Hamill, 
Uh, like these, these guys are, are decent prospects, but they're not, for most organizations, they would not be the top pitching prospect. Uh, but for the Mets, they are because of how many pitching prospects they've moved. And look, it's, it's not necessarily a bad bet to consistently bet against your pitching prospects, right? What is the, the old baseball perspective? There is no such thing as a pitching prospect. Right. Like Anthony Kay has not come back to bite the Mets. Justin Dunn has not come back to bite the Mets. Uh, we'll, we'll see if Simeon Woods Richardson now in Minnesota after being traded a second time comes back to bite the Mets or, or JT Ginn, who Law wrote about kind of maybe having a relief profile as well. Uh, like those guys haven't come back to bite them. Uh, but at some point, you have to develop your own, you know, if, if you can be Cleveland in terms of developing your starting pitching, or if you can be the Dodgers in terms of developing other people's starting pitching once you get right. them into your system, uh, then it makes it a whole lot easier rather than paying $42 million for Jacob DeGrom, 43 for Max Scherzer, or whatever it costs for, for Rodon or Bassett and all those guys. Yeah, I mean, there certainly does seem to be, like, there are teams that have the pitching magic, right? And the Mets have yet to become one of them. That is definitely a uh, a frontier to pursue as they, like, take on a, a what seems like a larger front office, right? Like, they're are they building out in the front office still? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're adding uh, where they can. Uh, but, we, you know, I wrote a story at the start of the 2021 season about how they wanted to build a pitching lab. Uh, and most of the guys involved in that project have left. Um, right. They, they haven't built that out. Uh, it just hasn't been. They haven't gotten a move on on that. And that, you know, well, that what are, what, I mean, who are the guys? Because how much can Cleveland possibly be paying these people? Right. Like, just <laughs> hire them all. Hire every single person. Right. Steve Cohen. You got to $28 billion or whatever it is. Like, siphon off $1 billion and get all of the pitching guys. Well, what's, what's interesting is, like, how, how much colleges have been ahead of the curve in this regard? Like mm-hmm. Wake Forest, yeah. which is the, the smallest Division One Power Five school, whatever you know, uh, smallest in terms of an enrollment, uh, has you know is has maybe the best pitching infrastructure of any college in the country, uh, mm-hmm. or one of you know. And we've seen teams take pitching coaches from college uh, the last few years. Uh, we've seen colleges take pitching coaches from the majors with LSU and the Twins. Uh, you know. It, it doesn't take uh, on this massive, uh, overwhelming investment. It's just hiring the right people and doing the work. And the Mets have been behind in it for so long that the work they're talking about doing is really just catching up. It's not being at the forefront of the industry yet. Uh, at, on that note, I suppose we can uh, we can sign off, hoping that the Mets will soon be at the forefront of the industry, but not before uh, the end of the World Series, which is uh, which is not going to feature them. I didn't think of a good way to wrap this show up, Tim. <laughs> that was that was depressing. We'll we'll be back next next week. I think we'll do our, our regular recorded episode, and then two weeks from now we will uh, round up our Halloween uh, in a live episode. Is that the plan? Uh, uh, that sounds good to me. Sure. All right. Until then, peace out. Adios. <laughs>